Imagine being 18 and arriving in a country where you don't speak a language. You don't know anyone. I actually got sent home from a job. And that's quite a hard thing to even admit like now, actually. Because for me, that feels like a failure, admitting that to you. Because I haven't really ever spoken about that. It feels like quite a dark part in my life where I really failed at my job. And that's hard. That's like a really hard thing to say, actually. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. I am Sarah Ann Macklin. And today, this is a solo episode on my personal story. This is one that was absolutely terrifying to record, I have to be honest. I sit here through the seasons and I interview other guests on their personal journeys and stories. This is one that I've been contemplating whether to record and even when recording it, whether to actually put this out and go live. But unless we start talking about our own personal stories and journeys, we actually never come together to help one another. I started the BY Collective for people to share and communicate with one another. And in this episode, this is exactly what I do. It's never easy talking about your own personal journey. And I feel absolutely honored and privileged that people have come onto this podcast to share their experiences with you. And today I share mine. During Mental Health Awareness Week, the topic this year is loneliness. And that's definitely something that I've been there, done that, got the badge. There's many other things I talk about in this podcast, such as my background as a child, where I grew up, how I got into the modeling industry, my lives, the highs and the lows that I lived, health conditions that I experienced, loneliness that I went through, a career change, financial. There's so many things that determines how we support our mental health. And so in today's episode, I open all of this up to you. I hope that this episode can help at least one person listening. And if it doesn't, I hope you find it interesting and a sense of connection to to who I really am. I'm terrified to share this with you guys, but hopefully you find it interesting. If you do and you want to watch the video, it's even more terrifying for me to say that there is a video on YouTube of this interview. It's a really exciting season in season eight where we are now going to be interviewing guests live on camera. So make sure that if you are more interested in vlogs, that you head to the YouTube channel, BeWare Collective, and you can watch them live. So without further ado, I'm going to stop talking. And here is my personal story for the first episode of Live Well, Be Well for season eight. Enjoy. So where did it all begin? I posted on my stories last week a question box to ask you all, what did you want to know about my life? To be honest, a lot of my life has been on social media and in the public eye since I was 15. And there's certain parts that you can take of a judgment of character from looking at that. But there's a lot that I have held back for reasons of protecting myself and protecting my feelings because putting yourself out there is really vulnerable. But I now feel at the time to be able to share personal insights of my journey, especially through my 20s with you, And I really hope this can help anyone listening to connect and realize that what we sometimes see on the outside isn't always the truth. So where did I grow up? That's a question that a lot of you ask me. And I grew up in a city on the south coast of England called Portsmouth. I grew up in a really normal family 
a dad working in construction and a mum working in the NHS. I have a brother who's 10 years older and I have a sister who's eight years older. And it was a very normal upbringing, a very normal family, went to a normal state school. And I always had ambitions when I was quite young to be a photographer. Funny enough, how I ended up in the modeling industry. Um, something that I definitely struggled with when I was young was reading and writing and speech. And that's probably something that you're quite shocked about hearing me talk today. There's a lot of people that assume that I speak quite eloquently and that I never mix up my words. And let me tell you the honest truth, I always mix up my words and I definitely haven't always spoken so eloquently. It wasn't until I was older that I was diagnosed with really, really severe dyslexia. And that's something that I battled through all of my school life completely undiagnosed. And I know now looking at many dyslexics at school, how hard it is for those young adults really struggling to read and write. So when I was 16, I um, finished my GCSEs. And it was at this point that I got signed as a model. I was already told that I was spotted at 13, but I had no idea that I was spotted before I was signed at 16. I went to a pop festival and for anyone who is near my age, um, there was something called Party in the Park run by Capital FM. And I went to go and see my favorite boy band, Blue. And as I was queuing up to go in, this person tapped me on the shoulder and they asked me if I'd ever been scouted for modeling before. And there's always that thing, I remember standing in this queue and my parents, it was the first time I think I went to a gig on my own with my friends and being terrified of a stranger talking to me because your parents always say, don't talk to strangers. And I immediately ignored them, thinking that they were probably some kind of insane pervert. <laughs> and actually, then they started telling me that they represented Liz Hurley, Kate Moss, and started, you know, telling me quite big names. Obviously, I'd heard of them. So I took some cards, and that day I was spotted by four different agents from four different big London agencies. I called my mum and she actually told me that a couple of years ago I'd been spotted by other agencies such as Models One and that's where I'm recording the podcast today. A few weeks later I went to go and see these agencies and within 24 hours I was signed to Select Model Management. That day I had a casting so bearing in mind I went up having no idea if I was right to be a model. I didn't know if I was the right height, the right size. I was definitely at school. Um, I wouldn't say bullied, but picked on more for being really skinny, not being a curvaceous girl, not ever having any boobs, um, always being really lanky and, you know, never feeling attractive, especially to guys. And that's quite a big thing when you're, when you're young, when you're quite flat chested, you have no curves and you fit into a training bra. And for many years, I hated that. And, but perfectly, that was, that was great for being a model. So all of those things worked to my advantage. I then went to my very first casting. I had one Polaroid in my hand and I went to go meet somebody called Henry Holland. And he is now one of the, or was, he sold his company a couple of years ago, one of the most famous British designers. And I went to go and see him for a casting. And I walked in, I gave him my Polaroid shot. 
They asked me how long I'd be modeling. I said 30 minutes. And I walked out and I thought, they absolutely hate me. I literally lasted 30 seconds. And within 20 minutes, I got a call from my agent saying, you've got the job. And I just had no idea of how anybody could have that reaction to me in such a short space of time and me thinking that they hate me to actually getting this job. And that basically hopefully gives you a bit of an overview of how you are categorized as a model. You know, you're not really interacted with very much. You go to continuous castings and you're not sure on what part they like about you, what part they don't like about you. So you have to have really thick skin. But I was so excited and that was the start of my journey into the fashion industry at 16. From there, I um, worked on my weekends and I worked in the bank holidays, but I had really, really strict parents. At the time, I hated it because I really wanted to come to London and model full time. I had big job offers on the table from people like Burberry and my parents were like, she's not missing school to go and do this job. So to give me some grounding, I worked in Burton, which if does, anyone doesn't know what that is, um, it's a high street shop, similar to Top Man. I worked for £2.10 an hour. And during my time at Burton, I was also pictured for the campaigns in Topshop. I was pictured for the campaigns in Miss Selfridge, River Island, M&S, Next, most of the high street. So I would go into Burton's, I'd work, behind the counter and my billboard posters would be all opposite where I was working. But because of my insecurity around being a model, especially at that time, I didn't tell anyone who I went to school with. So all of the people that I worked with in Burton would always say, really looks like you across the road. And I would have to pretend that that wasn't me. And I would continue earning £2.10 an hour I never knew any money I earned in the modeling industry. My mum would put it into a bank account. And when I was 18, I was told what I earned. I really learned from that age, the value of money and to understand how hard you have to work. I mean, it was a very low wage at that time. We are going back here like nearly 20 years ago. But still, I would earn probably more in a day than working at Burton for a good few months modeling. So when I was 18, I turned to my mum and I said, I really, really want to give this a go. My agent had convinced me that I had what it took to, to do well in the industry. And from that day, she told me what I'd earned. And I knew I had enough money to go and support myself and live in London for a couple of years. So I moved to London. I actually moved in with my agent um, at Select. I lived in Brixton. And this is a big transition. I lived in Portsmouth in a very, you know, small area with everyone who knows everybody, worked in Burton. I had a very kind of simple life. And all of a sudden I was in the middle of Brixton in the early 2000s, in the real hustle and bustle and given complete freedom to, to kind of live in this industry. Within a week, I was on a plane to Paris, I was on a plane to Milan, I was on a plane to LA, I was on a plane to New York. And I mean, it went from zero to 100 very, very quickly. And it was amazing. There was parts of the, there's parts of the industry which 
really were phenomenal and it was a life-changing experience. There was another part of the industry that was really, really, really hard to get my head around. One was the pure loneliness that came with it. So I didn't really have anybody to, to speak to during this time. And I talk about that now because it's something that I've realized, especially since COVID, that we've all come to realize of how important human connection is. Imagine being 18 and putting on a plane and arriving in a country where you don't speak a language. You don't know anyone. You don't know who you're gonna turn up to with on set. You don't know if they're gonna like you, if they're gonna send you home. You don't know any of this. And the uncertainty back then was we didn't have iPhones. I had an A to Z map. I would plot out where I had to go. And being 18, it's quite terrifying to not have Google Maps, which can direct you in the wrong, the wrong route that you're going. And so I learned pretty quickly to be very streetwise. Um, I have some really, you know, crazy stories of living in Milan. I would live in a camp bed and the only kind of phone charger was in the bathroom. So I would be sleeping on the bathroom floor to not miss an alarm. There was so many terrifying moments when you're 18, but on the outside, it looks very, very glamorous in what you're doing. And it's actually a really, really lonely job. You don't really create any stable friendships. If any people listening to this went to university, you probably all created stable friendships from those experiences of shared experiences together. Being a young model, you don't actually have any of those relationships. And it's not the get the violins out and I don't want it to sound like that, but it's trying to understand the, the importance of human connection. And although you're put into a really interesting career, most of it is spent on your own, doubting yourself, doubting how you look, comparing yourself every day and knowing that the value of your money is based on how you look. So you have to be really, really thick skinned. And many people ask me today, why is it that I got into nutrition and what I'm doing now? And why did I set up the mental health organization, the Be Well Collective? Well, around my early 20s, I went to live in New York and I had so many different places that I lived there. I lived in continuous model apartments. I was surrounded by a lot of young girls that had eating disorders, that had depression, that self-harmed. And although everybody was striving to be the next big thing, 98% of them never made it. And I would see a continuous influx of new people coming in, trying to make the next big thing in America. And that's where most people normally would go to do that. Bearing in mind along this journey, although this sounds quite heavy, there were amazing experiences, amazing connections made, I grew up quicker than anyone else I probably knew because I had a lot to deal with. Registering new companies, understanding your tax, VAT registering, all of this. Like it was something that I learned from the ages of 16 onwards. Learning how to deal with different personalities, different cultures, different environments, putting yourself out there and not being afraid. But it does teach you to become a bit of a facade of yourself that you can actually morph yourself into any situation quite quickly and to not always truly show who you are underneath. So, so much was tied to New York for me. And um, something that is really interesting that, that now I understand a lot more, and my gosh, I do not understand it fully, 
I'm still learning. And to this day, I will still be learning. And it's something that I want to also put out to you guys is, you know, what is your purpose? Because at 25, I really felt like I'd lost my purpose. I was at the top of a career. I'd bought a house in London. I looked successful. I was successful, actually. I was successful in what I was doing. I was shooting for the biggest clients globally. But I felt so unhappy. It's a really hard one to, when you're in that moment, to kind of put these two things together, to kind of say, okay, well, this is everything that's happening in my life. How the hell are you unhappy? But within it, I just felt empty. And it's a really hard feeling to describe. Okay, so I'm gonna give you a personal example of, of this. So there's so much of the fashion industry where we obviously highlight a lot of the time in the press that there's a problem with underweight models and you know the facade that this is how models should always be. And funnily enough, yes, that is correct. Like models are very thin genetically, most of them. But I got to a point where it really spiraled for me just because I was battling with not knowing about my health condition. And there was this one moment where I knew in my body, I didn't feel myself. I knew certain foods were making me feel really unwell, but I couldn't understand why. And obviously during this time, I was living in a very heightened, probably burnt out stress state as well. So, you know, not addressing how I felt. And it was around this time where it was actually the people surrounding me who obviously cared immensely around watching me at this moment, who were really concerned. And I decided to feel like I was invincible. Like, everything is fine. Everything's fine. And I would get questions and people would ask me, my close friends and family, if I'm all right. And yeah, I'm absolutely fine because I've got everything together. It's fine. And the outside, I'm fine. But I, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't fine. And it's this snowballing effect. And I, I went to a job one day and I had lost a lot of weight because I obviously wasn't absorbing my nutrients proficiently. And it's that very hard moment when, you know, the stereotypical thing is, she just doesn't eat. <laughs> well, I did eat and I loved food, but yeah, I wasn't absorbing food correctly. And, um, and so for that reason, I lost a lot of weight. And I was obviously highly stressed. And when you're stressed, you can either lose weight or, or gain weight as well. So I actually got sent home from a job for being too thin. And that's quite a hard thing to even admit like now, actually, because for me, that feels like a failure, admitting that to you, because I haven't really ever spoken about that. It feels like quite a dark part in my life where I really failed at my job. And, um, and that's hard. That's like a really hard thing to say, actually. Like, yeah, I, I didn't, you know, obviously everyone thought I wasn't the right way. Probably a really like great thing for you guys to hear that, that the industry recognized that and they didn't want to portray that, but that was a really, really hard situation. And I actually remember calling one of my best friends and I actually broke down the phone to her about it. And I really, I remember even calling her and not even sure how I was going to tell her that because for me, I felt like such a failure in that moment 
of getting turned away from that job. And it's hard because it was obviously physical as well. So I really hated my body at that point. But I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And then the next failure was like, how the hell am I going to tell my parents? They're obviously going to be extremely worried. So like another failure. And that pressure that you put on oneself of, of, of failure is, is really difficult. You know, whatever you guys might have been through where you felt that that's been a real failure and you're ashamed to admit that to someone, it's a really hard step because you kind of know that something was wrong and I knew something was wrong, but I didn't talk about it because I didn't want to admit that I was failing in that area, although actually my health was failing on me. And that was the moment when the snowball just went and I knew I had to do something. I knew I had to figure out how to get myself back to health. I knew I had to be honest because it stopped me earning, stopped me earning money. It stopped me modeling at that point. And, um, and yeah, and I think we can set ourselves really high standards and I definitely set myself high standards. I definitely do do that. And that's a really big detriment actually because you actually prolong that agony because you can make it so much worse. Um, and so, yeah, it was from that moment that the real interest in, in, in nutrition did spark but it was definitely a, a long road until I actually got to understand about it. So those biggest things that we're ashamed of, and my gosh, I feel like we've all, we've all got them, and if you haven't, then you are not human. <laughs> but, but it's something that I haven't spoke about, and I actually don't know why I haven't spoke about this, because this isn't a shameful subject to me. I mean, I, I run a mental health organization, so talking is so goddamn important. But that moment, I mean, I was very young at that point. I was 23, I think. You know, calling that friend and telling her did feel like a relief. I mean, it, I felt petrified. Putting any of your weaknesses out there is definitely petrifying. And one of, one of my biggest, you know, flaws in myself is actually admitting my flaws. And I think that's for so many of us. We're so scared to admit it. I don't know why, because we're all human and we all have vulnerabilities and we all have things that we're not you know, that we're not going to be great at. But if we don't talk about that and we don't share it and we don't exchange that information, exchange our fears, we don't normalize it. So, you know, I've had therapy. I've had to also because, you know, when I also as a nutritionist looked at eating disorders, I had to understand about that side of it. And I've gone through lots of therapy myself, um, you know, understanding about my career and my journey and you know, managing health problems and relationships and gosh, I mean, so much. And I think everyone should just have someone to talk to. You know, we look at therapy and my parents' generation would look at that thinking that there's a problem. And like, you don't have to have a problem to see a therapist. You know, this is really therapeutic, even though it's terrifying. <laughs> this is still quite therapeutic, telling you honestly to my audience and to people who have supported me or who are interested in what I do, talking to you guys about actually who I am so you can get to know me a bit more and know my flaws and my weaknesses and my failures, you know, humanize situations, like that's so important. And if we cannot do that for ourselves and we're not helping ourselves at all, we're also not helping other people. And so, I honestly would really recommend help 
yourself and speak to someone, speak to friends. But if you don't feel like you can speak to a friend, speak to a therapist, speak to a counsellor. It's really important to share how you feel. And if you're someone who someone's reaching out to to speak to, all you have to do is listen. You haven't got to be a therapist. You've not got to give them a structured advice. It's something that I think we all try to do is like that saviour moment of, okay, well, let's make a plan and let's do these next steps. You don't have to do that. You just have to simply listen. You guys have basically been a bit of a therapist to me on this podcast today by listening to my story. Um, and that is really, really important. It's also something that living in New York, it taught me of sitting at a dinner party at age 20 and there was a normalized conversation of everyone's therapists. And I genuinely had a mic drop moment where I could not believe that everyone around this table was sharing therapist recommendations, talking about how wonderful this therapist was and that therapist was, and being really English and very British. I was like, wait, we're talking about therapists? They're talking about their therapists? And it was a really interesting realization that I'd never been open to this kind of conversation. Whereas in America, if you don't have a therapist, you are not normal and you actually then have a problem. And I found that a really kind of interesting angle. Whereas in Britain, if you have a therapist, then you have a problem. And that feels really wrong because actually the more you talk about it, the more you help yourself, the more you learn, the more you grow, the more you feel supported. And so actually it should be the other way around. If we don't talk, we do have a problem. And so that's why it's really important. And I want you guys to know that Therapy for me was so helpful, just to understanding my triggers, my worries, my anxieties, because we all have them and moments in our life footprint these moments and we sometimes don't recognize them. And so it's really important to be reflective on your journey and your triggers. And you can do that through talking to someone. During my time in New York, probably the moment where I had some of my biggest successes but also some of my lowest moments. And I have a very interesting connection with New York that whenever I go that back there, I, I feel quite misplaced. And I think the reason is because I had some of the most ama amazing moments and memories from living there, but I felt so alone and I couldn't speak to anyone. And for me, whenever I can hear conversations around loneliness, which is a theme of mental health this year, I do honestly believe it is one of the most destructive mental health conditions you can go through. Because we are such social creatures and to be completely removed, doesn't matter who you are, what situation you're in, how successful somebody is, or what they have, or whether they have nothing, everyone has the right to have human connection. And so, Something I really do want to relay is no matter what somebody's life looks like on social media, if they are lonely, it's one of the most destructive things for your mental health. And it's something that I definitely went through with a struggle of, I really found it hard to understand what loneliness meant, to, to, to get a connection with loneliness, because mental health back then was never spoke about. So whenever I was told that I was too fat, too thin, too short, too tall, whatever my problem was with my body or what I looked like or where I was from, um, I never relayed that. I just internalized it. I internalized and, and I took all of that on. 
And that's really destructive. And during this time, I was also diagnosed with IBD. And that is irritable bowel disease. Now that's really different to IBS, um, which is also really unfortunate to have as well, irritable bowel syndrome. But it really changed my life. And I don't know if that was brought on through stress, um, but I really struggled with it. I lost a lot of weight. I got really terrified of foods that would trigger an attack of how I would feel. And it is an autoimmune condition. And I really, really struggled with it. And so on the outside, you would see somebody who is living in New York, looking incredibly thin, so obviously doesn't eat, and living their best life. On the inside, I was completely alone, um, really suffering with a condition that I didn't know I had, terrified of consuming food that might make me really, really sick, um, and terrified of the stereotype. And basically on the outside, I tried to make it seem absolutely fine. I had everything, had everything held together. It's not until I was diagnosed with that that I really wanted to understand how food could help me with IBD. And I do think about now why I've never shared that story. Um, a big part of it is that it's taken me a long time to get a handle on my condition that I suffer with. And from my very close friends and family around me have seen me go through some of the roughest months of struggling with it. And I've done a lot of fundraising um, on the side for Crohn's and Colitis UK. But it's something that I, I daily I have to live with daily. And the one thing that really, really helped me was my nutrition. And it was my first gastroenterologist that sat down with me and said many years ago, more than 10 years ago, I'd like you to cut out meat and I'd like you to look at your diet. And if we're thinking of 10 years ago, nutrition was just not spoke about. So I dived into this and wanted to know so much more. And I actually managed to reduce my symptoms, really handle and manage it. But every time stress came from rejection of a casting or maybe dropping of an of a agency, you know, my stress would build up again. So I had to really manage it. So I really understood the importance of mental health and my mental health. And I really understood actually how food would affect my condition. And through marrying these two together, hence my journey into nutrition started. And it was really powerful, but it was absolutely terrifying. And for anyone who is listening to this, who is in a career that they're worried about, who is worried about making a massive career change, I mean, I was at the height of my career. I was living in New York. I was about to sign some really big contracts and I left all of that to go and start a whole new career, studying in nutrition, moving back to London, reducing my work. So again, financial worry, how am I gonna pay for my university degree? It's 30,000 pounds and my books and my mortgage. And it was in a very worrying part of my career. And so I would say to anyone who is terrified of making a transition, it's more scary to carry on something that you don't feel insanely passionate about than to not do it. And I don't know what it was about that moment that made me do it, but 
I left, I enrolled and I started. And one of the questions that was asked in my social media to me was, why do you not model anymore? Well, as I talked to you through this podcast and my journey, I'm actually sat in Models One talking to you and relaying you my career. I still model, but it's not my sole number one job that I do. And it's through exploration of my own journey that I've built other ways of also building my passion, which is nutrition and mental health. And it's really interesting that that's part that you might not see of me because a lot of the information that I put out through this podcast is all around delivering a community, a conversation and a guidance toward factual based knowledge information. And that's something that I felt I never, ever, ever had a handle or grips on. I felt that every time I tried to find knowledge around how I could help my IBD, I would go down holes on social media of infactual advice, be completely misled and actually do myself more harm. The same as when I wanted to eat healthy to be a model. I would go down all these social media holes of something that wasn't helpful and actually really detrimental. So for me, the creation of what I wanted to create was factual, driven, evidence-based information to you guys, because I never felt that I had any of that. And so, so much of my journey till now, and what you see on the outside is me really aiming and striving to deliver that to you. And it's definitely not been easy. I started on the nutrition journey again, completely on my own, um, without actually any idea around science. I, again, didn't get diagnosed with dyslexia until I was at university. So for anyone who sits there and thinks, I really wanna do a career, but I don't have the credentials to get in, I didn't have any credentials in science to get into this degree. I had to go back and do diplomas, which I did on the side when I lived in New York. I was terrified of chemistry and how I was gonna understand that. I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia, as I said, so I think when you have a condition that you don't know you have and you really struggle, you do automatically think, is there something wrong with me? Why can I not get to grips with the information that's on the paper? But you can, you can always get there. You've just got to start. And so for anyone listening to this, you just have to start. And so for me, it was starting with going back and getting a diploma in chemistry, in biology to get me on to do a degree. I definitely didn't just kind of waltz into this degree and get a first and come out the other side. There was so much towards getting into that first step. And then once I got my two years of my diploma, which was really hard, I would get up at 7 a.m. and I would work 12 hours a day reading about this. I stopped work to do it. And then I got into university. And the first week in my biochemistry degree was my first ever panic attack. So we were told by the professor that we were going to have to announce um, part of our presentation on biochemistry. And that actually gave me a full breakdown. I called my mom. I sat outside the science lab and all she said was grab a brown paper bag. And that makes her sound so old school because I was hyperventilating so much that I just couldn't do this. I could not understand what the lecture was saying. Everything felt foreign, everything felt backward, everything I felt so slow. 
And that's something that's really important to convey because you probably feel like a lot of people, and I did for sure, who were studying this, super intelligent, would get this quickly in such a second. And for me, it just didn't happen that way. For me, it felt like Japanese. And so I cried in one of my professor's office and in my professor's office. And she actually said to me, can you tell me what an enzyme is? To when I just burst into tears and said, yes, but I feel so pressurized. I can't even remember what that is right now. And so we actually pressed pause for the next kind of couple of months for me to kind of get my footing and my grounding again. And so what I really want to convey here is it's definitely not been an easy journey, even on the nutrition side, to get to where I feel like I've got to. There's been so many barriers that I felt that have always blocked me that I'm not naturally gifted in science, writing, reading. But where I am now is a really different story. And it's these parts that you don't see that's the really hard parts to get through. And if it was really easy, I feel like so many more people would do it. And that's something that's really, really important. So I spent so many times understanding how, how did I learn? What made things easy for me? It was colors, it was recording the lectures, it was going for a run and re-voice noting them back so I could listen and obtain that information. It was a whole new way of learning, but it was the only way that made sense in my mind. And so I retrained myself in my own conventional way. And I think that's something that's really important. Whoever you are, whatever way you learn, whatever you find interest in, whatever thing you find passion in, drive that because for me, I didn't find passion and love in things such as reading and linear learning. And so for me, that felt like a blockage to get to the next stage every time. And in society, we can put so many pressurized parts of ourselves up there to think we can't do that because it's not how it's done. And I don't think any of my journey has been a linear, normal way to where I've got to. It's literally been the weirdest, windiest journey of so many potholes and steps backwards that have got me to where I am. And I think that's a really important message to share is that it's not easy and it's not perfect. And there's definitely still things that I feel very vulnerable talking to you about, such as if I stutter or I say something wrong or my pronunciation is wrong, but actually that's just who I am and that's how my brain works and that, part of my brain has actually led me to become really creative and quite entrepreneurial and think outside the box and do 10 things at once. And there's so many gifts to that brain, but society would put it in a very different way. And so I think so many times we can analyze oneself into thinking, I can't do that. And you look at somebody else and you think, I can't do it how they've done it. And actually you shouldn't do it how they've done it because you won't succeed. And so that's a really important lesson that I learned through my 20s of, of navigate your own way. And if you don't, then you'll never do it. And so one of the biggest things and the worries that I had was, was public speaking because <laughs> so many times I record these podcast episodes and I don't pronounce things right. I get so tongue-tied. And um, standing in front of European Parliament was one of my first gigs when I just finished university to deliver dietary guidelines 
um, to European Parliament. And the amount of breakdowns I had before getting on that stage <laughs> was unbelievable. But on the outside, on social media, it looked like I was so cool, calm and collected. And on the inside, I was having a total and utter breakdown. And so something that I really want to convey is that anxiety and that fear, harness it, take it, roll with it, and put yourself into those really uncomfortable situations. Because every time I've done that through my journey, I've actually grown and I've grown so much more than I could imagine. And if anyone around you discourages you, puts you down, tells that you're not good enough, makes you feel belittled, remove them from your life. Because so many times through this, through my journey, through my industry, I've felt those parts heavily. And as I've got older, I've realized the more, the less that you have of them, the more you'll succeed. And you have to be your biggest supporter inside. So if you don't believe what you're doing, then don't do it. But if you're gonna go for something, you're gonna make a change, you have to believe that you can do it and you have to believe it's worth it because it's never gonna be easy. And you just have to start. And so I'd say through everything I've ever done, just start. Start by how you can make that first step into your dream of what you wanna make. And my first step was acknowledging that this is really important to me. My first step was figuring out how do I get onto a university course? What other kind of degrees, what other assets do I need to, to maintain and understand before I can even apply? And each time you make that next step, you'll get, the, you'll get closer to what you want to create. And through all of this, if any of the situation that I talk about resonates with anyone, whether it's battling with dyslexia, whether it's battling with IBD, whether it's battling with social comparison and a low self-esteem, then that means the most because everyone battles with something. Everyone has their own journey. Everyone has their own personal story. And it's really, really important that we share that because from the outside, things can look so perfect, all held together and polished. And I'm sure there's many articles that you've read from someone that you look up to, from someone that you admire, from someone that you wanna be, and it looks probably really, really simple. And it probably isn't on the other side. And so much about my my journey has definitely not been simple. So as we come to the end of this episode, one that was very open and very vulnerable, I hope you feel that you understand a bit more about who I am and my journey. It's been very therapeutic to share this with you guys, so thank you so much for listening. And if it's helped one person, then I'm thrilled that this has been done, even though it was very hard. <laughs> So regular listeners will know that I always ask this question to all my guests. So I thought it was only right to probably ask the question to myself to end the episode. So I always ask, what does live well, be well mean to you? And for me, I think it really entwines with my values of what I stand for. And that is self-compassion, to be intuitive with how you're feeling, 
and to act on that intuition. Because if we don't resonate with something that feels right to us, then I found out that we're doing ourselves a real disservice. And so for me, it's about being compassionate with ourselves, but also being really compassionate with one another. It's really, really important. And so I want to ask you guys the question, what does live well, be well mean to you? And on that note, I can't wait to explore Series A with you guys. So as I come to the end of my story for the moment, I want to thank you so much for listening. So it's definitely been an interesting hour to spend with you guys. Not just recording this on a podcast, but also recording this in front of a camera. My journey doesn't stop here. There's still things day in, day out that I suffer with. And I'm sure that I will probably come back on here and, and you know, maybe relay more to you as, as time goes on. This has definitely been a huge step. And thank you so much for listening to this. Loneliness is something that should never be snubbed at. So during this week and onwards past this week, let's remember how important human connection, community and talking is. It's a really hard episode to wrap up, if I'm honest, because although I've shared parts of my life with you today, there's definitely still more that I'll probably share with you as time goes on. But throughout this season, we're going to be recording these interviews, sharing more personal stories and also more expert advice to help support you throughout this year. So thank you so much for listening. You've been fantastic and so supportive today and I cannot wait to bring you the rest of this series. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.